The rollout of COVID-19 vaccines has brought the American economy somewhat back to life, but the other side effects of the pandemic are wreaking havoc on the global supply chain. American consumers are buying up products faster than suppliers can ship them. Wow. Sounds terrible. Good luck, American consumers. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. Nobody. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, uh, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, and Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Boy, oh boy, Desi Doyen, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stories <clears throat> that seem to be getting settled on Tuesday. Did you notice that? Mm, yeah. Or now the, is the time to settle mm, all family business. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> kind of casting that in a darker light than I had expected. But yes. <laughs> or maybe they seem to be, you know, sort of working themselves out, coming to sort of a, a completion or a conclusion all at once. For example, the families of nine victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, have struck a first-of-its-kind settlement for $73 million with the maker of the rifle used to kill 20 first-graders and six educators in the uh, mass shooting in 2012. Uh, The families had sued Remington back in 2015, alleging the company should have never sold such a dangerous weapon to the public. They argued that... Their Bushmaster AR-15-style rifle was marketed to younger at-risk males in their marketing and product placement in violent video games. Remington argued there was no evidence to establish that its marketing had anything to do with the shooting and contended the lawsuit should have been dismissed because of a federal law that gives uh, broad immunity to the gun industry. But the Connecticut Supreme Court, in a story that we covered, uh, boy, a couple of years ago now, ruled that, in fact, Remington could be sued under state law. The gunmaker then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, declined to even hear the case. That opened the door for uh, this lawsuit and similar laws uh, and similar lawsuits in other states to finally hold gun manufacturers accountable. And today... 
uh, Remington, at least, was held accountable for $73 million, for whatever that's worth. In another court settlement today, Britain's disgraced Prince Andrew, accused in a lawsuit of sexually abusing a 17-year-old girl, supplied to him by um, financier Jeffrey Epstein, uh, agreed to settle with uh, the victim, Virginia Jufre, by making a substantial donation to her charity. The deal would avoid a trial and more embarrassment to the British monarchy, and Lord knows how many other sexual abusers might have been named as part of that trial. The settlement includes Andrew's acknowledgement that uh, Jufre has suffered as an abuse victim, but did not specify whether she would personally receive money as part of that settlement. Meanwhile, in another courtroom, former Alaska governor, Republican vice presidential candidate and momentary wingnut reality TV star Sarah Palin lost her defamation suit against The New York Times, who she had claimed had maliciously uh, damaged her reputation. What reputation, you might ask, by erroneously linking her campaign's rhetoric to a mass shooting after the Times cited a campaign website which used crosshairs like that on a gun to target certain congressional districts around the country, including that of then-Democratic Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was critically injured when a gunman opened fire at one of her town hall events, uh, killing six others in that massacre. Uh, though the paper immediately corrected their editorial's claim that had uh, linked the shooting to Palin and they apologized for the error. Palin sued anyway. But on Tuesday, the jury in the New York City trial rejected her claims one day after the judge in the case had already declared that if they had sided with Palin, he was going to set aside the verdict on the grounds that she had failed to prove the paper acted maliciously as required in libel suits involving public officials. And overseas, the Russia-Ukraine standoff might, underscore might, be headed toward, well, we'll call it a drawdown, maybe, hopefully. President Joe Biden said on Tuesday that the U.S. has, quote, not yet verified Russia's claim that some of its forces have withdrawn from the Ukraine border and said an invasion of Ukraine remains a distinct possibility. Biden had made the remarks at the White House hours after Russia announced earlier on Tuesday that some units participating in military exercises near Ukraine's border would begin now returning to their bases. Russian President Vladimir Putin said on Tuesday that Russia was ready for talks with the U.S. and NATO on military transparency, missile deployment limits and other security issues. But President Biden continued to express skepticism about Russia's intentions and warned again that if Russia invades Ukraine, the U.S., quote, will rally the world to oppose its aggression. Earlier in the day, a White House statement noted that the U.S. remains open to high-level diplomacy, diplomacy and close coordination with our allies. The U.S. continues to believe diplomacy and de-escalation are the best path forward, but is prepared for every scenario, the statement read. European leaders have been scrambling to try to head off a new war on the continent after several tense weeks. Weeks which, by the way, have left Europeans feeling caught between Moscow and Washington and further pushed up household energy prices there. 
because of a dependence on Russian gas. Aha! Tripped up by the old supply chain once again. Oh, yes. Even in Europe. Uh, But Wall Street shot up on the news on Tuesday that tensions in the region may finally be ending. That, after weeks of worry... Uh, had helped tank what had been a record bull market during most of the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. Now, whether any of this cools off the, uh, well, white hot oil and gas market, whose prices have skyrocketed with the threat of war, as we'll discuss a little bit more in Desi Doyen's latest Green News report coming up later. I think. Oh, yes. If time allows. We'll see. No promises. (laughs) Uh, The effect on oil and gas. Uh, remains to be seen. But the threat of natural gas potentially being choked off from Russia to Europe is just one more reminder of this brittle worldwide supply chain for all sorts of goods that has been exposed as exceedingly fragile over the past couple of years, all of which has had a troubling and often far-reaching impact on both the world and U.S. market and its economy. Late last week, for example, the Labor Department announced that consumer prices had jumped 7.5% compared to last year at this time. That is the highest rate of inflation in four decades. At the same time, low unemployment rates and extraordinary growth of GDP also met or beat records set way back in the 1980s. Even worker wages are rising for the first time in decades in this, yes, red-hot economy. But, of course, despite what many regard as a booming economy under Joe Biden, the media, and therefore I would argue the public, are obsessed with the inflation part of that news as if nothing else matters. Nonetheless, at the core of those inflation worries are both real problems such as supply chain issues initially triggered by the worldwide pandemic lockdowns and, of course, no small amount of corporate opportunism. What? Allowing free market corporations and monopolies to raise prices as they see fit. Almost anyone these days can simply blame, oh, supply chain shortages. And who could question them? At the same time, it doesn't take the worst pandemic in 100 years to see the fragility of our worldwide supply chain. A few protesting anti-vax truckers closing off a few border crossings between Canada and the U.S. can shut down hundreds of millions of dollars of trade in just a matter of days, leading to the temporary shutdown of major American car company manufacturing lines when those same companies are already struggling to produce after getting caught short on semiconductor chips made overseas and shipped just in time to where they are needed. A plan which works great until it doesn't, until things don't get to where they need to be just in time. Saber-rattling and, God forbid, the breakout of an actual war in Eastern Europe can further choke off oil and gas to the supply chain. And the saber-rattling itself, even without the war, just the worry of it, can send oil and gas prices sky high, as Americans have also noticed in recent weeks. All of this has served to expose a remarkably brittle and fragile system of worldwide commerce, trade and shipping over the past two years 
the one that seems so huge, so intertwined between so many companies and countries and consumers that it seems almost impossible to untangle in order to prevent the snarls and the slowdowns and the shutdowns and the inflation and occasionally empty shelves that we have seen over the past couple of years. And despite media claims that those supply chain snarls may finally be easing, well, they continue nonetheless in a number of critical sectors and are waiting to be shut down entirely all over again during the next pandemic or the next cross-border protest or the next war or simply, as Desi would tell you, bad weather which you may have noticed is becoming much more frequent and severe with our worsening global climate crisis. Yes, it is. So what to do about all of this? Well, I don't know, but I've got just the person to try to help us figure it all out. And he joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Change, change, change. Change, change, No kidding. Chain of Fools. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Risks to the supply chain established through decades of perverse policy decisions made by both parties. And this really does seem to be one of those rare both sides issues will always be with us unless there's a course correction, writes David Dayan in a special uh, issue of the American Prospect this month. He cites the pandemic and the recent Omicron variant as the biggest catalyst, creating labor shortages and local lockdowns that hinder production and transportation. But because of how we've built our supply chain, he writes, virtually any well-timed disruption can cut off a vital source of components or finished goods. It's an engineering flaw, he argues, where single points of failure cascade all the way to store shelves. Dan notes you can make a credible argument that extreme weather drove more supply chain issues last year than COVID did. Not only can flooding, hurricanes, cold snaps and droughts reduce commodity supply through crop spoiling or lumber going ablaze, but they can generate power outages that snarl production or storm surges that shutter ports and trucks. And these will only grow in frequency and intensity as the climate heats up. Meanwhile, he adds, because so much production is concentrated in individual factories, risks have escalated. A fire at a Japanese semiconductor plant last March removed a chunk of global chip production at an already fraught time. A second fire in Berlin just after New Year's hit a plant run by a Dutch firm that makes the machines that make most semiconductors. The world's main chip fabricator in Taiwan sits on a contested island that China claims to be part of its mainland and its status is precarious until that is settled. 
and global production of raw materials is so razor thin that political unrest in Kazakhstan, the world's largest supplier of uranium, sent commodity prices soaring. Pandemic or no pandemic, supply chain disruptions will continue to happen both more frequently and with potentially larger magnitude, Axios warned last year. The growing threats to long, concentrated supply chains make re-engineering away from a tightly interconnected system essential, writes Dan. But how can that possibly be done? How can we re-engineer away from a tightly interconnected system at this point, particularly without one single sort of planetary overlord of manufacturing, commerce and worldwide shipping? Well, in any event, before the problem can be solved, we have to know what the problem is. Luckily, the American prospect has a fascinating and at times both exhausting and exhaustive special issue out this month on exactly that titled The Supply Chain Debacle, How Bad Policy Outsourcing, financialization, monopolization, deregulation, and just-in-time logistics broke our supply chains, raised costs, and caused shortages. Joining us now to try to make some sense of all of this, or at least to help you know where to look to learn much more, is our old friend, longtime investigative financial journalist and now executive editor of The American Prospect, David Dayan. Oh, Mr. Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast. Congratulations to you and the whole Prospect team, frankly, for what is an amazingly ambitious and smart project that I'm still plowing through and, and learning more each day that I do, sir. Well, thank you very much. We, uh, we, we, you know, certainly worked hard on this, and we, we thought there was a story that wasn't being told about the supply chain, and uh, we, we took action to try to fix it in association with our partners at Groundwork Collaborative, which helped us a lot on this issue. And uh, I think we, we, we really got a sense of, of mm-hmm. what is driving this, how it was a, a historical pattern that that lasted decades to create a a, a system of commerce that introduced a lot of vulnerability mm-hmm. and and how the pandemic just happened to be the catalyst to create uh, the that vulnerability and, and, and turn it into chaos. That exposed everything else, that exposed all of the other uh, flaws in the system. I'm wondering what what your hope was when, when putting together this issue, because it feels in one sense uh, as much like a guidebook or a roadmap, if you will, for, you know, for Congress and for lawmakers in the White House, and in fact for corporations, uh, actually, uh, as much that as it is a news magazine explaining to readers and the electorate what has gone so terribly off the rails with our capitalistic supply chain system what were you hoping to accomplish i mean i mean i think at the time when we we started thinking about this there there were only a couple stories being told about the sources of inflation you had the larry summers and jason Furman's of the world saying that the economy overheated we spent too much money and that's why we have this inflation and now we have to you know raise interest rates and and throw people out of work and that's the way we'll get back to normal the alternative story to that from folks like the Biden administration was, oh, well, the Build Back Better Act will fix this. You know, and obviously we don't even know if that's ever going to even pass. We don't have point. it, right. Uh, but they weren't telling the deeper story, which is that we, the 
designed a system over the course of decades, both parties, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. that uh, had lean inventories, that relied on offshore production, uh, that, that, that relied on this concept of globalization, that allowed the, 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 the production facilities to become very concentrated, that allowed the spokes within the system to become concentrated, that deregulated everything to try to lower prices, Mm-hmm. on shipping and transportation, uh, and that allowed Wall Street to take uh, really the, the primary role in governing uh, this, this, th- these efforts. In other words, uh, telling corporations, yes, you have, to move your corpor- you have to move your production offshore for cheap labor, and we have to deregulate these industries so that uh, you know, costs stay low. Uh, and so all of these things, and you have to have just-in-time production, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. so that uh, you don't have any inventory sitting around just wasting money and we're spending too much money on, on warehouses. So all of this evolved over a long period of time through legislative efforts, through uh, efforts in the business world to become sort of the dominant theories surrounding business, and it created a system that works great until it doesn't, right. <laughs> as you said before. Yeah. It, 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 it does lower those costs. I mean, there's this huge bargain that uh-huh. was kind of made between the American people uh, without their consent uh, and, and uh, corporate America. Corporate America said, you know, we're going to take your jobs. We're going to send them offshore. You're going to have worse jobs. You're going to have a service economy in the United States. Your, uh, some of your communities are going to be abandoned because we're going to have Walmarts mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, there aren't going to be good jobs available. Uh, but what we're going to get you is low prices. Yeah, we're but going you... to give you these low prices, and uh, you'll be able to maintain your standard of living, even though uh, some of your communities will be in shambles and your jobs will be demonstrably worse. And... Then what happened in the pandemic is we learned that that system was completely fragile, and then we lost the low prices, which was the only compensation for all of these harms that were foisted upon the American people without their consent. Yeah, you're right. There go the cheap socks at Walmart, after all. Uh, Now, let let me throw uh, sort of the other side at this. Uh, You know, we had months of warnings that, you know, the kids weren't going to get their toys for Christmas. Well, most of the toys ended up showing up just in time to save Christmas, uh, which would then begs the question, is there really a problem here? Or was this just, you know, was it just a hiccup that we will restore it to what worked so well for the past 30 or 40 years once we get beyond? On this pandemic, if it was working so well, we wouldn't have 7.5 percent on uh, inflation year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a cost to uh, the extraordinary efforts that were taken to ensure that everybody got their Christmas presents, and, and that cost is felt by every American uh, in their pocketbook. And how? And, yeah. h- how much of that uh, current, you know, the 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 inflationary issues we're seeing globally? How much really do have to do with these supply chain snarls versus uh, corporate opportunism? Right. Well, I mean, I think they go hand in hand. Uh, number one, I don't think you can disassociate supply chain snarls and corporate opportunism because the entire supply chain was built in service to corporate interests rather than in service mm. to actually getting goods to people. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the argument you hear is that, well, what really happened is that 
we had this shift in demand from services to goods. Nobody could go out to restaurants. Nobody could go out to bars. They had all this extra money because they weren't bar hopping every night. Mm -hmm. And so what they were able to do is buy, you know, furniture or redesign their house. Mm -hmm. And we had this imbalance between, so, so demand for goods, which need to be shipped to you, is higher than ever, mm-hmm. whereas demand for services, where you go out and you go have a drink, mm-hmm. are, are lower than ever. Mm. And uh, there is a truth to that. However, that started two years ago. The, that, that started when the pandemic hit in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that the supply chain is, is run on these knife-edge principles yeah. that make it impossible for it to adjust to a shift up in demand. That is the entire problem. And so people who go on and say, no, this isn't a problem, it's just this, this shift, and, and as soon as it shifts back, everything will be fine, they're missing the point. The, the point is that this lack of adjustment reflects problems with how this system is engineered. Uh, and, and we can get into specifics. If you well, uh, just uh, holistically, you take a look at this uh, in this uh, special issue, how we broke the supply chain of uh, the American prospect. And let me just to give mm-hmm. to give folks uh, an idea, because I think the table of contents alone kind of <laughs> makes this clear. Uh, China, epicenter of the supply chain crisis. The hidden cost of containerization. We were warned about the ports, how America's supply chains got railroaded, why trucking can't deliver the goods, the warehouse space race, big business games the supply chain, frackers restrict the flow and raise the price. And then, of course, you end it uh, with your you essay. You only got to page one, uh, is the, what you're telling the, me. Just, I, I'm still <laughs> reading the table of contents. You end it re-engineering our supply chains. I mean, what you make clear in all of these pieces is that there is no one single uh, point of failure. It it seems like every there are multiple, everything there failed. Are multiple, there are multiple single points of failure. Yes. There I mean, you go, yes. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, outsourcing, uh, I'll just take them each in kind. Uh-huh. Outsourcing uh, a great majority of our manufacturing to China, particularly to centralized uh, parts of China and centralized uh, uh, factories producing specific goods, mm-hmm. that, that magnifies risk. That means that if, if the city of Wuhan, which is like the city of Detroit mm-hmm. in China in terms of its manufacturing uh, importance, if that uh, suddenly gets locked down because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. then a, not only a lot of finished goods can't get out of Wuhan, but a lot of component parts that are used in factories to make other goods across the world mm-hmm. can't get out of Wuhan. Yep. And that cascades across the entire world. So that's, that's what the, the risk that gets introduced with offshore production. So shipping becomes ever more important because if there are fewer goods getting out, uh, people are going to pay more price for shipping. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's almost no competition in the ocean shipping world. There are three major alliances uh, that the top ten shippers are kind of segmented into these three alliances. And uh, they have such pricing power that they made more money in 2021 than they did in the ten years between 2010 and 2020 combined. Wow. <laughs> they they wow. raised their rates 
tenfold, yeah. capitalizing on this dire need yep. that everybody had to get these things out. Uh, so, so that just gets you the shipping, right? right. <laughs> the, right. The, the next part of that is that the ships became ever bigger. This was an attempt to be more efficient mm-hmm. so that you have these floating empire state buildings uh, going across the world. Right. And uh, when you make the ships bigger, it means that some of the ports can't handle them because they're only dredged so much. They're only such deep water ports. They, they literally can't handle the size of these ships. And that means that very few can, one of them being the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, which is where 40% of all seaborne imports come into the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's another single point of failure, right? So if you have congestion at the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, you're going to have congestion on on almost a majority of all U.S. goods that are coming in for import. And sure enough, we have over 100 ships sitting off the coast of L.A. and Long Beach, waiting to get in line to get through the port. Are they still are they, are they still waiting, yeah. by the way? Because we keep hearing how, oh, things are easing at the ports and so forth. Or, are no, we still saying still that? Waiting. Yeah. The, 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 the numbers reached the highest point ever in the beginning of January. Uh-huh. And we still have, there was a time where they said, oh, the, the, the ship, the backlog of ships is easing, it's easing. What turned out, what happened is, they moved the ships further offshore so that they didn't count in the queue really? uh, but within the first 50 months. Yes, we uh-huh. write about this yep. in, the, in, in, the, in the issue. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that there's a two, and, and this is in Alex Salmon's story, we were warned about the ports. Mm-hmm. There's a 2015 report from the Federal Maritime Commission, mm-hmm. which is the main agency that's supposed to monitor this stuff, And in 2015, this is years before the pandemic, this report says if we have just a little bit more demand for imports, we are going to be completely overwhelmed at the ports because we didn't invest in uh, the types of facilities that would be needed to handle that increased demand. So we knew this was going to be a problem. We knew it was going to be a problem years and years and years ago, and we did absolutely nothing about it. That's what we do. That's, that's what we excel at here. And we're, and we're not even, we haven't even off uh, offloaded these that's ships yet articles. in the ports. I know. <laughs> that's, that's three articles, and I haven't even offloaded anything to yet. To the railroads, severe, the trucks, the warehouse. It's a severe problem with trucking. Yep. Uh, it, it has to do with the quality of the jobs. We don't have a trucker shortage. We have a good job shortage. Yep. No, but no trucker. Uh, even though there are millions of commercial licenses in the United States, no trucker actually wants to go to the ports and pick everything up because they're treated as independent contractors, and it actually costs them money in some ways mm-hmm. to just sit there in a snarl, in a line at the ports for hours when they're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. But they only get paid for when the load is actually delivered to a warehouse. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Uh, railroads, there used to be 40 Class 1 railroads. Now there are essentially four two that cover the eastern half of the country, two that cover the western half. And thanks to Wall Street's directives, they have reduced capacity. Uh, They have this thing called precision scheduled railroading that says, uh, let's, let's reduce capacity, let's reduce staff, let's only take what is profitable. And therefore, when demand increased, they had no surge capacity, they had no ability to carry more goods, 
and and that's another point of failure. Uh, with respect to warehouses, because of the just-in-time system we have, we just didn't have enough warehouses to handle everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a report that says by 2025, the U.S. is going to need one billion square feet of additional warehouse space to cover all the goods that we will need to put in warehouses. Uh, so it, it, this is just a cascading problem, yeah. but throughout it all, you see the exact same issues crop up. Uh, uh, so and outsourcing, globalization, that puts pressure on this entire transportation system because you have to carry everything from long distances to get it here. Uh, uh, monopolization, you see the shipping industry is concentrated, the, the railroad industry is concentrated, all of these inter- industries. Uh, uh, just-in-time logistics, that uh, creates the warehousing problem. Deregulation. We uh, deregulated railroads. We deregulated trucking. We did most of this in the late 1970s under Carter. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was another deregulation under Reagan and Clinton of ocean shipping lines, uh, and it created really just real bad situations for workers. Uh, we, We talked to someone. I didn't mention this before, but in our story on shipping, we talked to a guy who was a Filipino seafarer mm-hmm. who had spent 15 months on this ship uh, and has never hit dry land in 15 months. He's now bobbing off the coast of San Pedro Bay uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, this is because uh, even though this is a unionized facility, it flies a flag of convenience, uh, which is what they call it, of the Marshall Islands, so it's subject to the, the nation of the Marshall Islands labor law, and it allows uh, the, the company to just say, yeah, you're just going to stay uh, on this ship forever and ever, and we're going to pay you, I think, 500 bucks a month uh, or something like that uh, to do your and, job. And, and, and all of this, uh, it seems like a part of, again, it works until it doesn't, but all a part of squeezing out every extra penny, every extra dollar. Um, you know, to to uh, you know, capitalize on on profits. Period for That's these right. companies. I right. I, I joked uh, earlier about you know I, I don't know how much of a joke it was, but about you know the need for one single planetary overlord of you know manufacturing and commerce and worldwide shipping to try and and solve this problem. You seem to suggest we sort of have a de facto such overlord in Wall Street. But uh, you write in your piece on how to re-engineer our way out of this problem, quote, the supply chain disaster is an epic market failure producing fragmentation and chaos. A national system for moving freight has to be seen as a public good. Government needs uh, not only to re-regulate ports, ocean shipping, trucking, warehousing and rail, as well as reduce dependence on so much offshoring, but to view all of those uh, all of those elements as a systemic engineered whole. Well, David right. Dayan, that sounds very much like the very definition of socialism. But uh, <laughs> does that happen to be the type of socialism, in this case, in support of capitalism, after all, that all parties here, uh, including Republicans, might actually be willing to look at and fix somehow in Congress, as long as we don't use the S word when we're, we're talking about it? Well, let me, let me give you some good news, Okay, um, uh, which is appropriate here, mm-hmm. since I've just laid some really bad news. It was on grim. So, yeah, it was grim. Uh, so... Uh, I, I do believe there is a path to, to fix this, um, and we're starting to see it already. In the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. just a couple months ago, 
the very first bill that would re-regulate the ocean shipping industry, for example, to uh, ensure that exports from this country get out and to ensure that people aren't price gouged for uh, being able to ship goods, importers and exporters, mm-hmm. it passed the House with 364 votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is a broad, overwhelming bipartisan support. And the bill that uh, is coming up, it's, uh, it's called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act in the Senate, and the Competes Act, which has a long, stupid acronym in the House, mm-hmm. uh, both also have passed, and they're going to be combined probably with that Ocean Shipping Reform Act mm-hmm. uh, inside it. And, and that bill creates a lot of subsidies for reshoring. In other words, bringing stuff from offshore back to the United States. Mm -hmm. The other piece of good news is that the business community is starting to realize that uh, the the error of their ways, the fact that there is so much uncertainty in this supply chain that they have to go from just in time to just in case and build in some reserve capacity and build in some some redundancy into the system and, yes, bring some critical goods back to this country. We saw uh, Intel announce a semiconductor plant in Ohio. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, Taiwan Semiconductor announce a plant in Arizona. This is going to take years for these things to get online, but it shows a shift in the business community that, that maybe offshoring everything in sight and relying on these long, intermediated supply chains wasn't such a good idea. And, and that's... And, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's sort of where I was getting at, because uh, and, and again, as long as we don't call it socialism, is this a case where these companies would actually like more government intercession? Uh, because, you know, I would think many of them lost a lot of money uh, th- through this mess or or at least, you know, customers over the past year or two. Or are they just fine, uh, you know, raising prices to make up for the lost business? They come out well, ahead either certain- way. Certainly that's an issue, uh-huh. and it's an issue that the administration is talking about in terms of corporate profits. Uh, there's one interesting case study where the administration has been talking a lot about the meat industry, which mm-hmm. is very concentrated meat processing, uh, and showing how grocery prices were rising to extreme amounts while prices for the actual meat that to get from ranchers was very, very low. Mm-hmm. So it was clearly a profit margin situation. And uh, after the administration talked about that for months and months and months, in December, meat prices actually fell uh, Mm -hmm. by a couple percentage points. And it it seemed like the market signal that said, we're we're going to come after you if you keep doing this, Mm -hmm. the message got through. And so I I think we don't assume the, the public spiritedness of of uh, our economic overlords, we don't assume that they're going to you know do the thing that's right for their business and for the public good. We you know you have to continue regulating and coordinating these things. But if you do that, you could move people into the the the, the place that is not only good for uh, for consumers and good for workers, but also maybe even good for business. Uh, this was, uh, I mean, it, it's odd, it's interesting that this is a, a, a an issue where it seems like both parties and the public and, to a certain extent, the, the corporations 
all all realize that something has gone amiss and they are mm-hmm. willing to try to make change to improve it even if that includes you know government regulation that government regulation these days also happens to come with a whole bunch of money that they're you know putting out to uh, fix the ports and so forth under the uh, the yeah, infrastructure under the deal. bipartisan infrastructure right. bill which will help to a certain degree so, the best success that we've seen at a port mm-hmm. is in the port of Savannah, mm-hmm. where they added what they call the pop-up container yard. Mm-hmm. They just needed more space to put all this stuff, because when you get the empty containers and you, you have to unload them, you have to get the goods, you have to get the chassis, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, or the trucks that you know they put the containers on, you have to get those through. They just needed more room. And so the government financed getting the Port of Savannah more room. Yep. And they knocked down the, the number of ships that were offshore at that port from 30 to 2. So th- there, there are possibilities here, but they come with government investment in, in the ports. And we do have $18 billion in the pipeline to do that. Now, you might need more, mm-hmm. and there might be pl- cases like in L.A. and Long Beach where there isn't a lot of space available, right. you know, people yeah. are living in those spaces yeah. outside the port. Yeah. Uh, but you could see the possibility for how you could get to a solution there. And it comes through, you know, more investment. And again, it's a possibility that I think has, uh, that seems at, in any event to have sort of bipartisan support. You write about, uh, David Dan, uh, regionalization, onshoring, mm-hmm. nearshoring, in other words, mm-hmm. moving production from offshore, from China, back to the U.S. That's obviously a popular notion, and in fact, it could end up, you know, being a huge and positive sea change for America and those so-called forgotten men and women in rural America if we start moving mm-hmm. manufacturing back here. Uh, yeah. Does that and would have cause, the... Would it cause price increases? Yes, it would probably cause a one-time increase in the price level. But look at where we're at right now mm-hmm. when we're supposed to have this ultra-lean, ultra-hyper-efficient supply chain and all we're getting is price increases. Yeah. I mean, what is so much better... All we have is we have the impoverishment of the bad jobs, yeah. but also combine the higher prices. So why don't we figure out a better way here? Um, and the other one thing I want to say here mm-hmm. is that the pandemic was a dry run for the real threat to the supply chain, and that's the climate crisis. Yep. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, and as, as we mentioned before, you could make the argument that last year there was more disruptions from extreme weather events than there were from uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They shut down the Yangtze River. Uh, uh, the Yangtze River was flooding in China, mm-hmm. and it shut down the ports for weeks. Uh, and then after that, uh, because of extreme heat in China, uh, it reduced the amount of available energy, and they had to shut down a bunch of factories. And this rippled through the entire country. Uh, when last year we had the deep freeze in Texas, Mm-hmm. There was uh, uh, one factory in Texas that made a, a significant number of plastics, and this, you know, because of the petroleum industry, and this uh, ended up closing a lot of factories across yep. the country and around the world because suddenly those parts weren't available. You know, it, so it, 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 you're we're going to keep seeing this. Yeah. So you better make your supply chain a little more resilient <laughs> than it is right now because. 
this is not going to end. Well, it only took 20, 30, 40 years for uh, really both parties to realize, yeah, you know what, shipping jobs out of the country may be not such a good idea. I think we're still sort of in the first 10, 20, 30 years of, of, of trying to help them realize, yeah, you know what, climate change is a problem, and if we don't do something about it, all of this is only going to get worse. And to look at these situations as opportunities. You know, we have opportunities now with onshoring to manufacture here. That is good for the country. We have opportunities when it comes to climate change, you know, all over the country to make uh, changes that are good for us. But we're so, uh, you know, stuck in the, uh, the you know, the, the, the petro economy. Yeah. Yeah. These aren't just opportunities. I mean, they, they are opportunities, but they're also necessities. I mean, exactly. I think that's yeah. what the pandemic has shown, because if you allow these things to just fester and don't try to do something about yeah. it, you're going to get the worst of all possible worlds. You're going to get these rising prices and maximum discontent from the public. Yeah. And guess what? If you're, you're up for election, you're probably going to be thrown out of office. Yeah. So there, there is a, a real imperative here if, if you're a public official to get your hands around this. I, I've got only about 30 seconds here, Dave, but you suggest that there may finally be momentum to tackle these problems. And then you go on to note only one thing can block this momentum. The counterproductive forces of the status quo. Minutes from the Federal Reserve December meeting shows officials are raising interest rates faster than previously expected. Why are they doing that? And how would that prevent us from being able to make the changes and the investments, either privately or with public funding, that are needed to, uh, you know, to use to, you know, yeah. use this mess as an opportunity for change to prevent it from happening in the future? I mean, we're obviously going to get some rate hikes from, from at least the zero interest rate policy of the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But if you, the, the more that goes up, the more it depresses business investment. And right. business investment is what we need right, right now. Yeah. Both investments at our critical infrastructure facilities and investments in new factories yeah. uh, in this country. So it, it, you, have to, you would have to explain to me how you know, raising interest rates throwing a bunch of people out of work, which is what that is supposed to do, and then lowering demand overall is going to unclog the ships that are stalled at the port of Los Angeles. And even if you unclog them, you've now cut out the demand that for the goods that you can now take off those ships that would be then sent to warehouses and sit there because nobody has the money to pay for them. It makes no sense well, whatsoever. I don't know how it's going to unclog the ports, but supposedly it's going to slow inflation, and apparently that is the only real problem that Americans feel, uh, or at least that they are told that they feel. That's kind of what it seems like right now. David Dayen uh, with a perspective beyond just inflation in uh, the American Prospect special issue, How We Broke the Supply Chain. You can start reading it uh, at prospect.org slash supply dash chain. I don't think you have to be a member over at the Prospect to read no. it. I think it's all free. So you, in, You're allowed to be a member if you'd like. You, you can be. You should be. Membership. There you go. Uh, but yeah, uh, prospect.org slash supply chain, everything in that issue is there and available to read. And uh, we, we really think it's important. We 
took a lot of time and effort and, and resources to do it, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. You did indeed. David Dayan is the executive editor of The American Prospect at prospect.org. Uh, he's also, by the way, the author of Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, and I'm pretty sure this entire uh, edition of, uh, of The American Prospect is an advertisement for his book, Monopolized, <laughs> Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Uh, great speaking with you, my friend. Oh, follow him on the Twitters as well. He is D. Dayan over there. Great speaking with you, my friend. I look forward to doing it again soon. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Boy, he was on fire today, wasn't he? I know he? he was. And hey, I want to make yeah. sure people know that you can buy hard copies of The American Prospect if you're not yet a subscriber. So you can send the supply chain issue, which is truly epic, yeah. to anybody who needs to hear about this and understand what is structurally at risk and what is wrong and how to fix it. You must be working for the American Prospect. <laughs> no, I am not. At, but no, I have you're to a good say, salesman. I actually do rely on what they report. They <laughs> yeah. are very, very, very good. Yeah, and as I said, I mean, he was red hot uh, today because this issue and the stuff. I mean, this is obviously right in his wheelhouse. Yes. But you know, for all the complaints about the uh, the supply chain and inflation, and you know what? How about we actually do something about it? How about we actually learn what has gone so terribly wrong, you know, what, which has gone so it. sideways? And yes, how it can be fixed. And they talk in here, yes, about a lot of policies that are actually moving forward with so-called both sides uh, <laughs> on on this actual issue. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe we can actually solve a problem in this country that would be nice. Not holding my breath, though, because this is a huge problem. But anyway, we're moving in the right direction. Maybe. We'll see. Anyway, speaking of not moving in the right direction, let's take a quick <laughs> break. We'll come back with Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report. That's right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, I should correct one point, a comment okay. I made before the break, where I said we're heading in the wrong direction. Uh, we are heading in the wrong direction on, on climate change, but there's a lot of good stuff actually being done in that space as well. I agree. Uh, as we witnessed, even at the Super Bowl of all <laughs> places, uh, as we discuss in our latest Green News Report. This mega drought is being made worse because of the human forces here in climate change. Western U.S. mega drought is the worst in 1,200 years, new report finds. The future is electric, and this administration is moving toward it at lightning speed. Biden administration rolls out funds for national EV charging network, plus... Climate change is arguably the number one threat to the world now. Dr. Abel, you are now the number two threat to the world. I refuse to be number two. Carmakers spend big touting new electric vehicles during Super Bowl ads. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I don't know about you, Trey, but my car doesn't run off fairy dust. My car doesn't run off unicorn urine. Have you tried just plugging it in, Senator Kennedy? 
Just curious. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, it looks like uh, saber-rattling is not good for the world, but it sure seems to be good for the oil and gas companies, don't it? (laughs) Yes, yes, it do. Global crude oil prices have already jumped to more than $90 a barrel, the highest since 2014 amid escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Energy analysts warn that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could drive global oil prices to well over $100 a barrel, in turn increasing retail prices at the pump for consumers and prolonging elevated inflation. In the past, high oil prices have tipped the U.S. into recession. Some analysts have projected that the spike in oil and gas prices may speed up the shift to renewable energy, but not so much for those who profit from higher oil prices. A new analysis finds that big banks are still funding new oil and gas projects, despite being part of a U.N.-led group called the Net Zero Banking Alliance. Since joining the Net Zero Banking Alliance last year, 24 banks have provided $33 billion for new oil and gas projects. What part of net zero do you banks not understand? Worse, half of that amount came from just four of the group's founding members, HSBC, Barclays, BNP Paribas, and Deutsche Bank. Stop doing business with them. The International Energy Agency says to meet the target of net zero emissions by 2050, there should be no new oil and natural gas development anymore at all. Meanwhile, the impacts of fossil fuel use continue to mount. A grim new study warns that in the U.S. West, the last 20 years have been the driest in at least 1,200 years. And man-made global warming is making the Western drought more severe. Researchers publishing in the journal Nature Climate Change analyzed tree rings going back to 800 A.D., which is as far back as the data goes, and conclude that there would have been a Western drought regardless, but in the absence of climate change, quote, its severity would have been only about 60 percent of what it was. Mm. That's because as temperatures rise, the air pulls more moisture out of the soil than vegetation, making drought conditions much more extreme. We are really screwing this up. Previous mega droughts in the 1,200-year record lasted as long as 30 years. The study projects that this one will also likely last as long, taking it to 2030 at least. So we're about 22 years into the mega drought at this point? Exactly. Well, it'll be over soon. The 56th Super Bowl on Sunday in Los Angeles clocked in as the second hottest ever recorded. L.A. has been gripped by an unusual February heat wave that broke just a few hours before kickoff, falling one degree short of the record set in 1973, which was also in Los Angeles. And marking a cultural shift, nearly all of the Super Bowl car commercials focused on all-electric vehicles. Six out of seven Super Bowl car ads promoted EVs, according to Cars.com, including this GM ad with comedian Mike Myers appearing as Dr. Evil, and it was the only one to explicitly mention the climate crisis. We'll reduce our carbon footprint. Whatever. Okay, let's go. We're going all electric. 
To speed up adoption of electric vehicles in the United States, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm rolled out the Biden administration's plan for a national EV charging network. Federal agencies will dispense a first round of $5 billion in funding from the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the states. And that first round will place EV fast chargers along interstate highways and major corridors in every state. Secretary Granholm says it's part of the Biden plan to accelerate the shift to clean cars and create jobs. The federal investment in EV charging is going to go a long way to boost local communities and to create this seamless national network that provides accessible charging for all. And it can't happen fast enough. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. And then we're taking higher. Thank you very much, oh, Desi yes. Doyan. You know, we should cover uh, bigger, more impossible to solve problems on this uh, on this program. We should go big instead of these small these board little, problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, I used to refer to brandblog.com as the patron blog of lost causes because <laughs> that seems like the type of stuff we cover. Uh, so I'm always grateful when you find something to be encouraging about yeah, when it listen, comes to climate change. Like you say, we are moving in the right direction in some places, and there is always hope. And I find that hope and optimism are a lot more productive than cynicism because people don't get anything done with cynicism. So we're moving in that direction, in the right direction. So, you know, we keep pushing for those right direction things to happen. Other than that, we are totally screwed. <laughs> but thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to my guest today, the American Prospects, David Dayan. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we uh, made it worth your while. If you'd like to uh, download or if you missed any portion of this program or you want to share it with a friend, you can always do that for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please don't forget to hit one of those donate buttons or just go to straight to bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves dealing with these small, unimportant issues. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, no, we gonna rock. Electric Avenue And then we'll take it higher Out in the street Out in the street